The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning and welcome to Temple Bible Church. My name is Dave. I'm the high school pastor here at the church. And if you look in your bulletin at this uh, white piece of paper here, the very top you'll see Tornado Disaster Relief. TBC is teaming up with Wildwood Church in Norman, Oklahoma. And if you would like to give towards that relief effort, just make a check to TBC and Memo Oklahoma Tornado Relief. Much appreciated if you can do that this morning. Well, Gary's out of town today. He is at a wedding this weekend, which is is really um, kind of a blessing. It's the first time that he's not had to have a guest speaker for his health reasons. So he's actually had a pre-planned wedding to be at, so I get to sub in for him today. And... This is an exciting time of year for me as a high school pastor because we are graduating seniors and um, it's not that I want to get rid of them. It's just that um, we're pushing them out and we're launching them. And, but it's also a time of fear and anxiety for me as a pastor because the question I get haunted with is this. Did we do it right? Did we do enough? Are, are they really rooted and firmly planted in their faith? And so I had this haunting question, but it's not just a question that I wrestle with when it comes to our seniors, it's a question that I wrestle with with the entire church as a body. And the question we as pastors wrestle with, and that is, are we firmly planting you and rooting you in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And this is really our hope for all of us here at TBC, that as our, as our culture begins to pull and tug and try to pry you out of the ground, that our hope is that you would be someone who's so firmly planted in the gospel in Jesus Christ that you would not be moved, that you would not be moved. And so the big question for today is, how do we become these kinds of people? And so turn with me today in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. And I want to give you some background before we read Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. The Apostle Paul was in a city called Ephesus here in the middle of the map here, and the Apostle Paul ministered for three years in Ephesus, and a man named Epaphras came from Colossae over to the east, and he went from Colossae over to Ephesus, and Epaphras became a Christian under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And then Epaphras went back to Colossae and walked into a pagan city, a city that did not know about Jesus, and began to minister the gospel there in Colossae. He plants a church. And he boldly proclaims Jesus and the gospel there in Colossae. At this point of the story, Paul is actually in Rome, Rome, and he's in prison, and he writes this letter to the Colossians. And you can imagine for Paul that it was a very exciting but also terrifying thing to hear about the Colossians and their church because Paul had never met the Colossians. So on the one hand, it's exciting, like, yay, you know, we see more Christians come to know... uh, coming into Christ because of the ministry of Epaphras, but at the same time, Paul's also terrified, wondering, but are they really believing the, the right and true gospel, or are they falling prey to false teaching? And so Paul writes the book of Colossians because he's concerned about them falling prey to false teaching. And so we're studying this this morning for two reasons. Firstly, because many of us are going to be tempted to fall prey to false teaching throughout our lives. But secondly, I want to encourage you to be like Epaphras, that in whatever walk of life you are in, that you'd become like Epaphras, and whatever 
pagan culture you walk into, even for the seniors as you graduate, um, as you walk into those campuses and those cities, that you'd be just like Epaphras and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever you go. Research tells us that uh, this is a time of year of transition for many people. Obviously, seniors are graduating, college graduates are looking for jobs, medical people are moving in and out of Bill County, and um, research tells us that over 17,500 people moved from Bell County in 2010 alone, moved from our county to somewhere else in one year, 2010 alone. We're a very transient population with our medical community and our military community. In fact, this is not just Bell County, it's nationwide. Over 40 million Americans move every year. That's about one-seventh of our entire population moves every year. And so Epaphras is saved in Ephesus, but his ministry is in Colossae. And so my encouragement to you this morning is that some of you are saved here in Temple, but your ministry might be somewhere else, just like Epaphras. And so my hope is that you'd be a person like Epaphras that is firmly rooted in the gospel to the point where whichever way the cultural winds are blowing, you will not be moved and uprooted from being planted firmly in Christ. So the question is, how do we become this kind of person? Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, uh, look with me at verse 6, Colossians 2, 6. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so the Colossians are being tempted to add to the gospel. There are some people that are saying things like, You've got to add these elements of the Mosaic law. You've got to add these things to Jesus and the gospel. Jesus is not enough. You've got to add these things to Christ in order to grow or in order to be saved. And these people are distorting the gospel that Paul is so passionate about. And so Paul is writing saying, you don't need to add anything to the gospel. You don't need to add anything to Jesus. Just walk in what you already know. He says, as you receive Christ Jesus as the Lord, so walk in him. In the same way that you received him, that is how you should walk in him. What I mean by this is that as we receive Christ by faith and we walk by faith. I think many Christians think that we're saved by faith but we grow by works. It's not true. Many Christians think that we are saved by his, his grace and his mercy and we're saved by faith and they might come to know Jesus for the first time as their Savior, but then they think the rest of the Christian life is about just trying really hard, putting forth effort, and just growing ourselves by works. And Paul is saying, no, you, you, you keep going in where you started. You keep going in the same grace and mercy and faith as where you began. And so you'll be tempted to chase after new ideas and new things to essentially add to the gospel, to add to Jesus. But there is nothing apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that can save you or grow you. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that grows us. In fact, a a writer named Tullian Chivigian, he's Billy Graham's grandson, he wrote a book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And I love the title because it's a perfect summary for Colossians. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Meaning everything that we need is in Jesus. Everything that you and I need for sufficiency is in Christ himself. In fact, I would add to this, 
I would add to that that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. I know this will upset the math nerds in the room. But Jesus plus, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Whenever you add anything to Jesus, it's really a subtraction. It's really less than where you began if you add anything to him. You've heard the expression that less is more. Well, in this case, more is actually less. Anything more than Jesus and him crucified is really a subtraction. So this raises a really important question because I'm curious now, why would anyone want to add to Jesus, right? Why would anyone want to add to the grace and mercy freely bestowed upon us at the cross? Why would anyone want to add anything to that? And so the Colossians are battling legalism. They're adding rules to Christ and adding rules to Jesus. And the question is, why is legalism so attractive? What is it about our human nature that we are actually drawn to rules and want to put an extra burden on ourselves? What is it about that that draws us to that? doesn't make any sense. In his uh, recent sermon, Tullian Chivijan says this, Legalism allows us to avoid Jesus without having to acknowledge our insufficiency. And so if someone is putting extra rules on themselves and adding to the gospel and adding to Jesus, they're doing it, may not be aware of it, but they're doing it because it's really a way of avoiding Jesus altogether, isn't it? It's really a way of saying, you know, I'm going to follow this list of rules, so when I follow them, I can feel better about myself, and I don't ever have to throw myself on the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Because I'm sufficient in and of myself, I don't need him. Now, we don't say that, we don't admit that to ourselves, but essentially that's what's happening. We don't want to acknowledge our insufficiency before Jesus, so we add legalistic rules to the gospel. And so we really, we avoid the gospel because the gospel makes us insignificant. The gospel makes us disappear. The gospel makes us less and makes him more. And so we avoid that because we want to make ourselves more and make him less. We want to make him insignificant and make ourselves significant. This is why people fall into legalism. In verse 7, Paul uses three words that I think are really important. He says that you need to be rooted, built up in him, and he says abounding in thanksgiving. He uses three words, rooted, built, and abounding, which means to overflow. And so Paul compares the Christian life to three things, a plant, a building, and a fountain. Now at first glance you might think, well, those things seem really unrelated. And you're right, they, they just don't sound kind of unrelated. But I want you to see the progression here in this picture. Rooted, built up, and abounding, overflowing. Rooted, built up, and abounding, overflowing. Now we know that roots are an important part of any plant. Uh, roots are not glamorous. You would never buy your wife a bouquet of roots. That would not go well for you. But roots are not glamorous, they're not flashy, but they give life. They're an essential part of the life of a plant. They're underground, they're under the surface, so you don't see them, but they're a huge part, obviously, of of any kind of plant life. 
And so what Paul is saying is that you're going to be tempted to change the soil, to change the scenery in your Christian life. And Paul is saying stay planted and stay rooted in what you already know. Don't try to change the scenery, change the soil. Stay planted and rooted in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and what you already know. And here's the reality. If your roots are firmly planted in Christ, you're not going to want another soil. If you truly know him and find sufficiency in him, you're not going to want some other soil. Then he goes on to say, use the word built up. This means uh, being built up. The funny thing about the word rooted is that the word rooted is actually means once for all, the action is complete. Christ has done it for us. But this word, the next word, built up, being built up, this is something that's ongoing in the Christian life. We are constantly being built up. We're constantly growing. We're like a construction project never complete. We're like Scott and White Hospital. <laughs> but there's, I want you to take notice though for a minute, there's, this foundation never changes. The soil never changes. The foundation never changes. And again, these, these pictures might seem unrelated, but they're connected because a rooted believer and a growing believer will overflow with thanksgiving. There's a relationship here. You know, a really convicting question to ask yourself, if you want to gauge your walk with Christ, answer this question for yourself. How thankful am I? How thankful am I? If you're someone who's a rooted believer and a growing believer, you're going to overflow with thanksgiving. In fact, the writer, uh, Brene Brown, she says this, It's not joy that makes us grateful. It's gratitude that makes us joyful. And it's impossible for someone who's not grateful to be joyful. I think most of us kind of wait around for joy just to happen spontaneously. And what she's saying is that when... When all these things lead to thanksgiving and, 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 and gratefulness, gratitude, when it leads to that, gratitude actually makes us joyful. So a rooted believer is, is a growing believer who's an overflowing believer with thanksgiving, and that actually leads to joy. And that's the, the fruit of what it means to be rooted in the gospel. But the big idea here that I want you to see is that we don't need to add anything to the gospel. We don't need to add anything to Jesus. You know, with my students uh, in the high school ministry, I know a lot of them picture the Christian life like they see the, the gospel as just, you know, gospel is sort of Christianity 101. And once they get that and understand it, they feel like, okay, now what's next? Let's move on to the next thing. And what Paul is saying here is that, no, there's no moving on from that. You stay planted, firmly rooted in that. And you keep growing deeper and deeper and deeper into it. So the gospel is not something you graduate from, but you grow deeper into it. I know for many Christians, they have this idea that, okay, this is it? Is this all there is? And Paul is saying, yeah, that this is what there is, right? That to grow as a believer, it means that you stay on your foundation, you stay in the soil where you were planted in Christ, and you stay there, and you grow for your entire life. In fact, he, he also makes this analogy that the Christian life is kind of like a walk. He says, so walk in him. Which basically means that the Christian life is to put one foot in front of the other for a long period of time. And at times, it's 
boring and tedious and the scenery is not great and your feet hurt and you want to give up, you'll be tempted to say, this is it. This is all there is. And you'll want to add something else to it. And Paul is saying, no, you don't add anything to the gospel. You stay firmly planted and rooted in Jesus Christ and him crucified. The way to growth is to go back to the beginning, to the foundation. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There is just something about false ideas that are captivating, isn't there? If you look at our culture, you can watch the news, you can watch talk shows. Let's be honest, there are some ideas that are floating around our culture that are going to sound better than the gospel. Even for Christians, there are things you're going to hear in our culture and say, yeah, that, that sounds right, that sounds, I know it's not true, but it sounds good, it sounds true. And this is just how the enemy works with his deception. I think that we live in a catchphrase culture, don't we? There are certain catchphrase ideas floating around that are really philosophies and ways to live our life. And so here's some ideas for some catchphrases in our culture. Things like, believe in yourself. Don't change who you are. You need good self-esteem. Now, each one of those are things that sound good. They sound right. And I'm sure someone can make a case for those things. But when you look at them in light of the gospel, they're not based on the gospel. Believe in yourself. I want to believe in Jesus. When I believe in myself, things go badly. Don't change who you are. This is a popular one today because what happens is, I don't mean things like, you you can't change aspects of who you are. That's obvious. But when people say that, what they mean is, this sinful activity I'm involved in is part of who I am. I'm not changing who I am. Or this part of my personality that's kind of like a jerk is part of who I am. I'm not changing who I am. Just deal with it. And the reality is, Jesus saves us to change us, doesn't he? He he wants to change who we are. He changes our identity. Or how about this one? You need good self-esteem. Isn't the most important thing the level to which I esteem Christ? Not having good self-esteem? Because I'm pretty sure that my self-esteem is the problem. Right? And so I want to esteem Christ. I want to put him up there and put myself down here, and then when I do that, everything else is properly ordered and self-esteem takes care of itself. And so these ideas, they sound good, they sound right, but ultimately they're anti-gospel, they're deceitful. And as a high school pastor, I've seen many fall away because of these kinds of deceptions. In fact, David Kinnaman, in a book called You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving the Faith, He says that those ages 18 to 29 are the black hole of church attendance. And see, if you're in that age range, I want you to go ahead and stand just really quickly. 18 to 29, go ahead and stand up real quick. I want to embarrass you this morning, so um, just go ahead and stand very quickly. And I'll also say they're the most likely age group to be at the uh, 11 o'clock service as well. (laughs) That's definitely true. 
But I would say that it actually starts before 18. I would say that it starts more around sophomore, junior year, when I start to see some students pulling away from the faith and pulling away from Christ and, and the church. And so Kinneman says that almost 60%, 59% of those raised in the church will drop out of church at some point in their life. Now, I know they all don't abandon their faith, but many of them do. And he says, in the book he says, For these young adults, faith is nomadic, seasonal, or may appear to be an optional or peripheral part of life. For some, faith was never very deep. They were in the building, but never really committed to following Christ. He also says that many people reject the faith because they never had a faith to begin with. They, they, never know, they never knew who God was. They don't have a proper understanding of who Jesus is. In fact, he uses a phrase that's thrown around by a lot of scholars today called moralistic therapeutic deism. I know when I say that, um, I'm a high school pastor, and when I use big words, they decide to take a nap. So I would encourage you to listen in for a second. Moralistic therapeutic, what is that exactly? Here's what he says. God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He is always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. He calls this kind of faith rootless and superficial, but it is the faith of many, especially here in the Bible Belt. In fact, uh, a few months ago, every so often I will just individually pursue a student that I want to talk to about their faith and just see where they're at. And a few months ago, I pursued a student, this guy in our youth group, and I said, hey, let's go have coffee and just talk about where you're at with Christ. Because I'd seen him coming around a lot more on Sundays and Wednesdays, and I'd, I'd seen him engaging and asking more questions. So I wanted to see, like, where is this guy really at with his faith? And so we sit down at Starbucks, and I said, so when did you feel this sort of pull towards Christ and this church, and he said, well, you know, I um, came to Connect Weekend, which is a, a big weekend for us in the fall. We bring a band in. We, we have a, a, a speaker we bring in as well. It's a two-day event. And we always communicate the gospel very clearly at that event. And he said, you know, I just really felt that weekend, I just really felt the music. And then I'm waiting for the, the and. Okay, and, and there was no and. It was just, yeah, I just felt the music. And I, I went, well, let me explain the gospel to you. And I explained it to him, and he listened well. And I felt like it was the first time he'd ever heard the gospel. And I'm thinking to myself, we've been preaching this thing on Sundays and Wednesdays at Connect Weekend, and how have you not heard this? And what I realized is that a lot of people are buying into what is being talked about here, and it's moralistic therapeutic deism, because they see God as just this vague warm, fuzzy spirituality, and they might feel sort of drawn to the church for, for some reason like that, but the question is, are they really truly rooted in the gospel? And this is the very thing that concerns me and scares me and drives me as a high school pastor, because research shows that most people who change their faith views, they do so before the age of 24. And so the question is, what do we actually do about this? I want you to look back at, um, at verse 8, where Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive. And so what Paul is saying here is, is he's saying, See to it means to be careful, to be cautious, watch out for this. You need to have a healthy fear of what's out there. 
Now I've got, I have two small kids. One has a healthy fear. One does not have a healthy fear. Uh, my son Landon's five, and he's got a pretty good healthy fear. My daughter Sienna, who's two, does not understand healthy fear. And I'll give you a picture to, so you have a face with the chaos. Um, but my daughter Sienna, if I say to my son, if I say, Landon, don't do this, it will cause you pain or death. Uh, Landon says, okay, I won't do that. But Sienna, if I say, Sienna, don't do this, it will cause you pain or possibly death, she'll just add it to her bucket list. (laughs) Now you've given her a reason to want to do it, right? And so a few months ago, my wife and I and my kids, we went down to Austin for a a conference, in, a pastor's conference in Austin, and we're staying at the Embassy Suites across the river from downtown. And if you know the Embassy Suites Hotel, they've got like a real big open middle where you can look down from your room and see the, the lobby. And so we get to the hotel and they say, hey, good news, we're going to upgrade you guys to the presidential suite. I think, that's what's that? Never heard of it. And so we get to our room, and this room is like where the rock stars stay. I mean, I kind of feel like I need to get a guitar and like, Smash some bottles against the wall, you know, just to make myself feel at home, you know. And, um, but this room is huge. I've got like a massive living room and, and two bedrooms. And it's perfect for us for that, for that weekend. And so one afternoon, my wife uh, is there with the kids. I'm at the conference. And Sienna and Landon are down for their naps. And so you've got Sienna in one room over here. You've got Landon on the couch in the living room. My wife's in the other room uh, reading. And my wife is being, trying to be very cognizant of the fact that, that, our, that our daughter will try to escape at any moment, right? And so I forgot to mention, though, that we, there's, a, there's a lock on the door at the, uh, the main door there. And we made note, we've got to make sure we lock that door from the inside so Sienna can't get out of the room when, when she'll try to escape at some point. And so this one time, we forget to lock that door. And so my daughter Sienna gets up out of her room, unbeknownst to my wife, and and goes to the door, opens the door, goes down the hallway, gets on the elevator, and proceeds to ride the elevator up and down for a while. <laughs> Meanwhile, th- there's glass elevators here so that everyone can see into this elevator. So there's two guys in the kitchen area who see this, and they realize, okay, that should not be happening. <laughs> and, and so... I wasn't a part of their conversation, but I imagine it went something like, you get the girl while I call CPS. <laughs> and so they get her off the elevator, and now she's in the lobby, surrounded by the hotel staff, and now they're wondering, who does this girl belong to? <laughs> and so this one lady remembers that she had seen this girl at, at our room, and so she came to the door, knocks on the door. My wife comes to the door. My wife still thinks that Sienna's sleeping in the room, and she's like, yes, what do you need? And the lady says, uh, yes, ma'am, um, do, do, you have a, do you have a baby? And my wife says, yes. And she says, well, you might want to come over this way. And so she peers over the edge. And my daughter is nine floors down the lobby, surrounded by hotel staff, holding her teddy bear and says, hi, mommy. <laughs> and this is our daughter, right? Our daughter doesn't understand healthy fear. She doesn't understand, when we say beware, be cautious, watch out, she has no idea what that means. And so what Paul is saying here is that 
healthy fear can be good fear. You've got to be careful. You've got to watch out. You've got to be cautious. You've got to intentionally guard yourself so that you don't fall prey to the enemy. So the question becomes, how do we actually do that? Look with me at verse 13. And I love this part of the passage because 13 to 15 is a, is a clear picture of the gospel. Colossians 2, 13 to 15, where it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I love this section because this section is the gospel laid out for us. This section is the gospel. And if you want to be a person who's deeply rooted in your faith instead of a shallow, superficial faith, you've got to be rooted in these truths. The first point that I want you to see here is that rooted people know Being a Christian is not about a bad person becoming good, but a dead person being made alive. A person who's rooted knows that before Christ, we were completely and utterly helpless and dead without Christ in our lives. And this person also knows that it's not about a bad person becoming good. I think many people come to faith and think, okay, I've got to just... I've got to fix this, I've got to stop doing this and start doing this. And, and we think that we can somehow fix ourselves. But I want you to know this morning that it's not that before you became a Christian, it's not that you were drowning and Jesus throws you a life preserver, but you were a dead person floating and Jesus drags you up on the beach and he breathes new life into you. That is the gospel. No one is saved apart from the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. The second point that I want you to see here is that rooted people know that sin is not fixed by us, but it's forgiven by Jesus. Again, I've asked people before, you know, what what makes you a Christian or how'd you come to faith? And I'll hear things like, you know, well, I started coming to church and I just realized I need to do better. I need to stop doing this and start doing this. Stop doing this and start doing this. And they have this idea that they are supposed to fix themselves and then mix in a little church, mix in a little Jesus stuff, and that's what it means to be a Christian. And a true rooted person knows that you can't fix yourself. You can't fix your sin. You're in need of a Savior who cancels the debt and pays the debt for you. That's what it means to be a rooted believer. In fact, the picture here is really vivid. In that day when someone was crucified, their crimes were written on a note and nailed to the cross that they're on. So if someone's a murderer, or someone's a thief, or someone's a rapist, that sign is posted on their cross to let everyone know, this is why this person's being crucified. And if you remember, there was a note nailed to Jesus' cross, and it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And Pilate's the one who put that note on the cross. And the interesting thing is, is that when you look at, John chapter 19, there's a chief priest who says, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And I think Pilate wanted everyone to know that Jesus was innocent, that his only crime was being 
Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And so, as Jesus has this on his cross, and it's, it's, it's a display, an announcement of his innocence, Pilate answers this chief uh, priest and he says, you know, what I have written, I have written. Pilate knew he was innocent, and I think that note proclaimed his innocence. But according to this verse, that wasn't the only note nailed to the cross of Christ that day. But whatever note you and I would have on our cross if we were crucified back then, whatever that note would say, or that long list and that record of debt, the sins that we've committed throughout our lives, whatever that thing would say, that was also nailed to Christ's cross as well. Our record of debt was nailed there with him. Thirdly, rooted people are convicted, but not shamed. Rooted people are convicted, but not shamed. And I love the way this verse And it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Conviction is good, and it should lead us to the cross. Conviction leads to the cross, but shame leads to destruction. So if you're a person this morning and you've been firmly planted and rooted in Christ, and the accuser is making accusations towards you, about sin that you know that's been taken care of on the cross, sin you've been forgiven of by Jesus, sin you have repented and turned from and confessed to Jesus Christ, if that's you, this verse says that you're wrong to sense shame about that because that's been dealt with in the cross. Here's the interesting thing in verse 15. Is that the cross turns the tables. The cross takes the shame that you and I experience and instead of Keeping it on us, Jesus takes it upon himself and he turns it on Satan and his demonic forces. This means that Satan, the accuser, has no power to accuse those who are in Christ. Anyone who is succumbing to those temptations and listening to those accusations of past sin, if you're a, a rooted believer, you will know, no, it's good to be convicted, but I will not be shamed. I will not let the accuser keep on accusing me because when I do that, I really am canceling out the cross of Jesus Christ. And so these are the truths that, as believers, we have to be rooted in. If you're someone who wants to have a deeply rooted faith and not a shallow, superficial faith, these are the ideas that you've got to anchor into and root into. Your life must be rooted in these things. Not some vague, mystical, abstract spirituality, but these hardcore reality truths are where your life has to stand. Be rooted in these things. In his book, The Explicit Gospel, Matt Chandler tells a story about seeing Troy Aikman at a restaurant one night in Dallas, and I'm going to borrow his analogy that he uses from that story, because recently the same thing happened to me. My wife and I were at Dallas, in Dallas, and I were at this, at this uh, restaurant, and um, we sit down for dinner, and my wife says, Dave, Troy Aikman is sitting right behind you. And now see, I'm a lifelong Redskins fan. So I turn around and I kind of go, yep, that is definitely Troy Aikman. I mean, I could touch the guy with my hand if I did this from my seat. 
And so um, I'm you know, texting pictures to friends and stuff. And you know, it's weird for me because as a Redskins fan, meeting Troikman is kind of like meeting Satan. You know? <laughs> it's like exciting and horrifying all at the same time. And so there's Troy Aikman, and I started thinking about this, and there's a lot that I know about Troy Aikman. I know he played for the Cowboys. I know he used to terrorize uh, my Redskins for many years. And I know he's a, a number one draft pick. I know he went to Oklahoma for a while, then he went to UCLA after that and, and became a top pick in the draft. I can tell you a lot of things about Troy Aikman. But imagine if I left that dinner that night and told my friends, yeah, I know Troy Aikman. Like, we're friends, we're tight, we're boys, we hang out. If I said that, they'd laugh me out of the room. They know it's not true. I know a lot about him, but I don't actually know him. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, that might be true of you and Jesus, is that you might know a lot about him, but you might not know him. You might know some facts about him, but you might actually have a relationship with him. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to him or submitted yourself to him. And so this morning what I want to do is um, I want to invite you, if you're someone who would say, you know, I've never submitted my life to him for the first time. I've got some vague, warm, fuzzy spirituality things from church, but I'm not sure I've ever really rooted myself or been planted firmly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that's you, I want you to come down front today after we pray this, this afternoon and And pray with someone and tell Jesus that you want to be planted and rooted in him. And surrender your life to him. And submit yourself to him. That might be some of you. Others of you might say, no, I've been rooted. I'm a Christian. I've been planted in him. I know I'm a Christian, but I'm just not growing. If that's you, we also want you to be rooted in community and grow through community. You cannot live your life as an isolated individual believer. You can't do it. You need people around you to help you grow in your faith. And so you've got to be rooted in community if you're not a part of a small group. So if that's you, I want you to go out to the back lobby and look at the information table and find out a way to get plugged into community so you truly can be rooted there and grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll pray. And if there's any elders or deacons in the room, I'd ask you to come down front and just kind of wait if anyone wants to pray with you this afternoon as we close out, let's go ahead and, and pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy to us. We thank you so much that we get to partake in a relationship with you. We thank you that, that you do the planting. We thank you that you do the rooting. We thank you that you have accomplished that by your grace and your mercy in the cross. We pray that you would help us to be so firmly planted and rooted in you that nothing that hits us in this culture can uproot us and move us. We praise you for your grace and mercy. We pray this in your name. Amen.